I want you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. During World War II, it was Winston Churchill who was faced with a, a difficult decision. Um, you know, uh, the British intelligence, their secret service had just broken the Nazi code and informed the uh, Winston Churchill that the Germans were gonna bomb a little place called Coventry. Um, but the, the, the problem was his alternatives were, number one, do you evacuate the citizens and save hundreds of lives to ex at the expense of um, indicating to the Germans that their code was broken? Um, uh, they would have known that if, uh, if he'd evacuate the town. Um, the second alternative was to take no action, which would maybe end up killing hundreds in the town of Coventry, but the information would continue to flow and the uh, British would possibly save uh, many more lives. Um, and as it turns out, uh, Churchill chose the second option. Uh, more than 400 people died in Coventry from that bombing, which was heartbreaking. And it, and it was a controversial decision, of course, but in retrospect, as we look back on history, he was not only able to save tens of thousands of lives, but they kept the information from the Germans flowing. And it would be one of the things that would ultimately help lead to the end of the war. Um, and uh, it was, it, you know, in retrospect, turned out to be the right decision. But that's the thing about decisions. When you make a decision, you don't always know if you're making the right decision. And, you know, time will tell and stuff like that. But we're faced with making decisions every day. Some of them seem like no big deal. You chose to come to the 10 o'clock service today. Uh, you got up out of bed, that's great. You chose to get up out of bed and you chose what you were gonna wear. Some of you chose differently. Some of you walked on the floor and picked up a piece of clothing and smelled and made sure it was not too bad. And uh, others of you had them all finely pressed and put in your closet and everything was nice and neat and you chose very... Uh, now, now it, we all choose and, and make choices but have you ever wondered how far uh, is the decision I'm making right now gonna affect it, it, uh, you know, my, my future or other people's future? And uh, I'm, so, I'm so impressed with um, how the Lord orders our steps because I've made decisions that I think were sort of knucklehead decisions, but the Lord is gracious and he tends to work all things together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. But all that to say, you know, life is full of tough decisions, um, but... Um, some of those decisions will change your life forever. Uh, you know, Deb and I, we, we think of our lives and how it kind of, you know, would, would eventually shake out. I, like, for example, in my little story, uh, as a little kid, my, my parents, if you're old enough, maybe you remember the Wilderness Family TV series? That was my family story. Uh, my dad was a construction worker in LA, uh, and he finally just said, I'm out of here, and, and literally packed up our family, and we moved to Oregon, and the, in the most remote place they could think of or find, um, uh, Upper Applegate, Oregon, which was uh, you know about 30 miles outside of Medford, uh, but up in the mountains. And we built a little house and lived there. Um, but after a while, my dad said, this is too populated still. And so we decided to move to Montana. And so when I was around uh, junior high age, um, uh, we went up, bought a piece of property and started building our house, went up in our Volkswagen uh, up there in Montana, a place called Big Fork, Montana. Um, which w was really not a big town. I think the high school had a, a graduating class of you know, 10 people or, or whatever. But, but we had our own little property with a lake and everything. It was really pretty and stuff in the summertime. 
But in the wintertime, there was like four feet of snow all year round and our lake froze over. You could drive our truck out on the, the lake uh, there in Montana. And, and uh, my mom was saying, uh, this is too cold. Uh, and, and she basically said, we're out of here. And my dad said, uh, okay, so we moved back to Southern Oregon. Now, now, just that alone, those decisions, my sisters and I often think about how our lives would have been different had we lived in Big Fort, Montana. Uh, we would have married different people um, and that would have uh, changed the trajectory of our lives and our children would be different because if we were married to different people and, and, and would I have ever even become a pastor because when, when we moved back down and uh, that's when I really started getting the stir in my heart to become a pastor. And then ultimately Debbie and I uh, decided uh, through prayer and seeking the Lord to move to Portland, start a church at Athey Creek. And that little decision of Debbie and I moving, you know, uh, Deb and I and our little preschoolers up to Oregon it changed our lives kind of forever. And then because the Lord's, you know, used this church, it, it, we, we see people that met and got married at Athey Creek and we're thinking, wow, they may not have met each other had Debbie and I not moved. Like, like we start seeing the ripple effect of all the things and, and lives being changed just because of like one little decision. It makes you a little nervous. You could make a decision that could mess everything up. But of all the decisions that you're gonna face, there is one that I think is the, the, the pinnacle of all decisions. And that, that is the question, you know, what do you do with God and your relationship with God? What do you do about Jesus Christ? And people are gonna have to make a decision one way or the other. Now, sadly, not making a decision or putting it off can be making a decision. It's like you're floating down a river uh, of life and there's a fork in the river, and it's gonna, you're gonna go one way or the other, even by not making a decision, you're making a decision. It reminds me of a time when I was on the Applegate River with my buddy Kirk Daly, and we were floating the river on inner tubes. We did that all the time in the summer. Um, just float and eat blackberries and float and stuff. But um, this one particular part in the river, it, there was a fork in the river, and I chose to go left, he chose to go right. And as we went around, my section went a little faster. So I kind of zipped around and I kind of floated around and then I could look back up the other side that he went down as he was coming through the other side. But to his shock, um, my side was great. His side, there was a nudist colony swimming there. <laughs> and Kirk's floating in his tube and he's bright red, just looking at me like, you know, and, and I remember uh, thinking, oh man. And, um, and you know, and the, that part of the water was really slow. It just kind of slowly, <laughs> um, he chose poorly, I chose wisely. Um, but, but that's life. As, the, as, as the, the river goes of life, so do the decisions you make. Now, some people say, well, I'm gonna put off decisions. But if you, if you get older, you start realizing time is tricky. Because when you're younger, the river flows very slowly. If you're 21 or less, you have no idea what's coming. Time, you think, well, time is sure flying. No, you don't know that. I remember old people telling me, Brett, you don't know, man. Time gets faster the older you get. And I'm just like, uh, now I know that. But now I have like 80 year olds telling me, oh, Brett, you don't know what you're talking about. Time gets fast. Like, I'm like, oh no, it's gonna get worse than this. Time goes by fast and the older you get, the river flows faster and pretty soon those decisions, they kind of zip by in life. And sometimes some of the decisions we have to make are too far back and gone. But of all the decisions you make, life decisions can make a huge difference. And the biggest decision you need to make is what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Um, was he God incarnate? Was he a good teacher or was he God in the flesh, Emmanuel? Um, and then, you know, you have to kind of consider what Jesus said and what the challenge was. And, 
And it gets down to a decision. Are you a lover of God? Do you love God? Now, even some of you are like, I don't know about that language, loving God. But Jesus in our text here is gonna make this radical statement that's a huge precedent that is worth your and my attention this morning. As we're going through Matthew, this is a big deal. These, these little verses we're about to read are a huge deal. Um, it's actually called the Great Shema, huh? The Great Shema, what's that? Well, I'll show you. But, but before that, let me set the stage a little bit. On Wednesday night, we're gonna see uh, there in Matthew 22, there's groups that are trying to trick, trick Jesus trying to make him say something stupid or something controversial that makes people mad at him. That's what they're trying to do. Um, is that much of a, a good plan to try to trick God? Uh, nobody's gonna be able to do that, just a heads up. They're gonna fail miserably. But even Wednesday night, we saw them trying to trap Jesus in his words and stuff, and, and that was in chapter 21. But in chapter 22, the first group that comes to Jesus in 22 is a group called the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were a group of Jews that sort of caved and said, okay, the Romans have conquered us. We're basically Romans now. Stop trying to be Jews. Let's just be Herodian people who are uh, loyal to King Herod um, and uh, hail Caesar, that kind of thing. But they were hated by a lot of the Jews. So the first group that wants to sort of make Jesus look bad is the Herodians. So they come and ask Jesus a question related to the Romans. We'll see this in, in Wednesday night where they say, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Of course, they would say, of course, we should. Dutiful Roman citizens. But they knew that they could trick Jesus into being sort of controversial. If he said, yes, pay taxes, then the other Jews would say, well, Jesus is just another Herodian, whatever. But if he says, don't pay taxes, then the Romans could come and arrest him for causing trouble. They're trying to get Jesus, but I love, you know, you remember, many of you know this, the way Jesus kind of does this in uh, chapter 22, verse 21. He, he basically says, um, you know, uh, whose picture's on the coin there that you have? Uh, Caesar? Okay, give to Caesar what is Caesar, but give to God the things that are of God. Um, you know, Jesus speaks so wisely in his answers. The second group that come after swing and a miss, number one, the Herodians, the second group is the Sadducees. The Sadducees, a religious group, um, very scholarly, very intellectual, um, but they were people who didn't believe in the resurrection, life after death. That's why they were sad, you see. That's how you can remember it. Um, they were sad, you see, because they don't believe in resurrection. So uh, they asked Jesus a question about the resurrection. They think they can tri trick Jesus. Uh, he thinks there's life after death, so let's see if we can trip him up. And so they make up this scenario. Okay, once upon a time, there was a woman, and she marries one guy, and he kicks the bucket, and another guy, and then he kicks the bucket, another, and another, and another. And they get all the way to seven, seven husbands. This, if you ask me, maybe the guy should stop marrying her. It sounds dangerous. Um, but, but after the seventh husband, she dies, they said, um, and you know, um, and then they asked that question, you know, who is this woman gonna be married to then in eternity? Which one of the seven or what's the deal? Now, Jesus' answer, if he answered all of them, then he's a polygamist. And that was frowned upon in those days um, uh, as it should have been. But uh, if he said uh, none of them, then he would be sort of nullifying marriage, which would have been a controversial thing to say. But Jesus answers this one very uh, clearly because Jesus knows what eternity is gonna be like. And he, he says there in Matthew 22, right around verse 29 and 30, he basically says, man, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You do error, you make a mistake. 
He says, you don't understand God's power. Uh, the idea of the power that's gonna be involved in heaven and eternity. And he says, in the resurrection, there'll be neither marrying or those given in marriage, but they'll be like the angels in heaven. Well, what's that mean? I don't know, but it's, it's different. We're not gonna be married in the way that we're married here on this earth. Now, this always causes consternation by people in the church when I mention this scripture, because if you have a really good marriage, I, I always hear that, you know, oh, we're not gonna be married in heaven. <laughs> and, um, and you might be like really sad about that. There's the other people, I can almost see you and some of you going, yes. Um, come on in for some marriage counseling. We'd, we'd like to help fix that. Um, uh, but but um, just, a, just an FYI on, on the thing that Jesus is saying, um, even though there's not those who are married or given in marriage in heaven, when you read the rest of the Bible, heaven's gonna be a bazillion times better than anything we have on this earth today. Do you understand that? So the relationships we enjoy in eternity are gonna be better than the relationships we have here. So you mean, uh, I'm gonna still have a relationship with my poopsie here on the earth, you know, my husband or whatever? Listen, um, you know, people always ask me, brother, are we gonna know our spouse in heaven? Will we know him or know her? Um, you're not gonna be stupider in heaven than you are today. Do you understand that? When we see him, we're gonna be like him. We're gonna know stuff and you'll know, I think we'll know each other in a way, way better than anything we know and any relationship that we'll have in heaven will make marriage sort of seem like uh, nothing uh, compared to the relationships we're gonna enjoy in, in eternity. So don't be worried about that if you're worried about that side. Um, but they think they've got Jesus, either nullifying marriage or arguing for polygamy. Um, but Jesus, you know, just, just clear, uh, clearly answered that. So the Herodians swing and a miss. Uh, the Sadducees swing and a miss. And now the third group of people come up to Jesus with a tricky question. But this is the big guns because these are the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were legalists. They were into the keeping of the law. It was all about the law and they were rule keepers and all that stuff. Um, and uh, this happened to be a Pharisee that was also an attorney, a lawyer. Now I'm gonna re resist the temptation to make lawyer jokes at this time. Uh, but this, this Pharisee was a lawyer and they were into the law. That's why they're not fair, you see. Um, so, uh, sorry, just trying to help you remember uh, who these people are. Uh, <laughs> but the Pharisee lawyer comes up and that's where we pick up our text here in our story. Check it out. It's uh, chapter 34. Uh, ch verse 34, chapter 22. It says, but the Pharisees, when the Pharisees had heard that he put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, now um, he, the question he asks here is noteworthy. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? A lawyer asking Jesus about the law. And this is something you and I might miss. Uh, I need to remind you what we're talking about here. Remember the 613 laws of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament? I've got my wall back today. I like bringing this whenever I can. Uh, this is the 613 laws of the Jews uh, from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And these guys had this memorized. I mean, you have to understand these people, especially the Pharisees, they knew every single one of these laws. But here's how the lawyer is trying to tempt or test Jesus, by asking him which one of these is the most important laws, well, he's stirring up a bee's nest because during that time, the Pharisees and all the religious people argued over and over about which one of the laws were most important. 
And nobody got along and nobody agreed. And it was a very uh, divisive topic of which is the most important of the laws. And so what he's hoping to do is getting Jesus you know, to answer and, and, and whatever his answer is, he would find himself aligning himself with one group or another or, or rejecting another group just by saying one little thing. It's a little bit like what happens today. Have you ever noticed that if you have a, even a tiny little opinion about something that might be a little this way or that way, people say, you're a progressive liberal or you're a wacko conservative. Like people just wanna shift you right into some category and that's what people do. And it's really stupid of people to do that, by the way. And what it does is it makes it so nobody has a conversation anymore and we can't actually talk to each other. We're too busy screaming. Um, well, that's what they were doing in Jesus's time concerning the law of the Old Testament. And so the Lord's like, which one of the laws is the greatest? Okay, go ahead, Tink, ping. It's like, you know, uh, let's just blow this thing up with Jesus. But Jesus, knowing all things, gives the perfect answer here. But not only is it the perfect answer, it's a good thing to know. It's something you and I can learn from, the answer that Jesus gives. So let's read his answer back to Matthew 22, verse 37. Jesus said unto him, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. See, the lawyer was asking about the wall of laws and then Jesus says, the thing I'm about to say here, all of that hangs on this. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. All those other things that you guys are screaming at each other about hangs on those two things. So I love how Jesus is putting down the controversy by saying, well, the whole thing is love. Love God, love others, uh, which they're not doing, by the way. They're all screaming at each other because of the laws. But all the laws, in other words, everything falls apart if you don't first have love. And this is the stuff the Bible teaches over and over again. First Corinthians 13, you can speak with the tongues of men and angels, but if you don't have love, you're just a clanging gong, the Bible says, and you're good for nothing. That's what the Bible says. If you, have, if you have not love, you're just a big waste of time. That's the way the Bible treats this. And so uh, Jesus brilliantly answers it. And by the way, he wasn't just making this up out of thin air. Jesus is, is quoting from the, the Torah, the law of the Old Testament Hebrews, um, when he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five. That he's basically quoting what they called the great Shema um, when he says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, and might. Um, now, why do they call it the great Shema? The, the word Shema means to listen or to hear. And the reason the Jews would recite the great Shema, and it starts with, hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. And then it says, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, and, uh, and a soul, and might. And so all that to say, this idea of, of the, you know, hear, O Israel, this is, this is famously known by the Jews. But Jesus is saying, Forget the 613 laws just for a second. The big deal, the big deal is love. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What a radical thing. And see, this is where all these people hearing Jesus are gonna have to say, is this what we're willing to do? Are we willing to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength? And what does that even mean? What does it mean to love God? This is the kind of decision that you're facing as a person on the earth. Am I gonna love God and do I even know what that means? And if I don't love God, 
Uh, how do I fix that? And, and when we talk about love, I, I believe humanity, probably one of the most clumsy topics we have is love. Um, a lot of people still think that love is strictly only an emotion. Oh, it does include that. But love is not just an emotion, it's actually a decision. You choose to love someone. And that's an important thing to know. Uh, and, and, and this is something that is gonna help you when it comes down to what, what Jesus is saying here. And it raises the question, do you love God and do you love others? Are you generally a loving person? Or are you hateful? Or do you just kind of say, oh, I'm more neutral. I don't know if I like people or hate people, but uh, I'm just gonna remain neutral. Well, as it turns out, Jesus sort of raises the stakes here and they were, they were more into their rules and regulations than they, than they thought anything about having a, rel- a loving relationship with God. Um, and this is where we get to kind of two points of our teaching today, only two. Uh, the first one is an imperative choice, um, meaning that you and I are uh, forced to make a choice. But before we get into that, the, 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 there's a connection between the choice, loving God and loving people. Um, did you notice the word like? It says here in verse... 39, and the second one, after he said, love the Lord thy God, the second one is like unto it. Now you say, what's the big deal about the word like? Well, the, the word like um, is, is an interesting um, uh, Greek word that uh, is more than just like a simile here. The idea is um, the definition of this word uh, homios, which means similar, resembling, but this is the, the different part that our English word doesn't capture, corresponding to or linked to. In other words, when Jesus said, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, he's not saying that that's it, and then there's a second one that's totally dis, dissimilar or, or disconnected. He's actually saying, um, linked to that and corresponding to. In other words, one, the first one's kind of the most important one, and then linked to that as a result of that, it's, it brings the second. So just kind of a thing you need to know. So, um, so the, the very first thing that we have here is, is uh, an imperative choice that we have to make, and it's the first one, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The reason I uh, say love God with the heart, mind, soul, strength, uh, four things instead of three is because depending on what translation you have, the Old Testament says mind, uh, the New Testament says might, uh, or pardon me, vice versa, the Old Testament says might, the New Testament says mind. Which one is it? The answer is yes. The idea is what Jesus is saying in the Old Testament is they're not dissimilar in the sense that um, it's saying with everything you've got emotionally, intellectually, uh, all of your being, this is how we're supposed to love God. It's an imperative choice that you have to make. And the question is, do you love God? Now, before you answer that, that's a rhetorical question. Um, ask yourself that honestly. You know, do I really love God? And do I love God with all of my heart? Is my heart divided to other things? Do I love other things more than I love God? And, and this is an unfair question. I always hate when uh, pastors do the whole thing where they trick you into doing something. Uh, like, 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 have you ever been in a church where, you know, somebody comes up and says, like pastors, hey, how about those Oregon ducks? And everyone's like, yeah! Or, or the beavers, yeah! Uh, let's worship Jesus. Yeah, whatever. And then the pastor's like, see, you guys care more about the ducks than you do loving Jesus. Um, I don't want to be one of those weirdos, okay, just, just for the record. But at the same time, we do have to kind of check our hearts. What, what are the things that we're really passionate about? 
And what do we really love? And do we love the Lord? And, and, and it's not even just saying, do we love him? But do we love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? And Jesus is making this an imperative choice that we have to make. Are you a lover of God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? And that's kind of an important question for us to ask ourselves, the imperative choice of love. And, and um, you know, the problem is uh, when people make a mistake of sort of compartmentalizing their lives, this is the problem. See, when, when, when you get that sort of dilemma, do I love the, the ducks or the beavers more than I love God? Or do I love leather craft more? Like uh, quilting. Um, you know, you might say, Brett, how could a person love quilting? Well, I guarantee there's somebody in this room who loves, don't raise your hand, but I, I guarantee there's somebody in this room who loves quilting. And man, you're at the quilt stores and you're getting your quilt stuff, you know, whatever that is, um, needles and material, uh, stuff like that. Um, and you're doing your quilt and, and, you know, and I'll tell you why you love quilting or leathercraft or dirt bikes or golf or whatever the thing is, bowling. Listen, whatever you spend time investing your energies and efforts into, have you ever noticed that's what you kind of love? People love what they spend time with. And that's why Jesus told us about this. He gives us a freebie. Jesus spells it out. He says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he says, you know, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, your love will follow whatever you treasure, whatever you put your money and treasure and energies and efforts into, that's where your heart's gonna be. What a cool tool that is, because if you wanna love something but you don't, all you gotta do is start investing your treasure to fix that. That's why when a young couple, you know, it's, it's so sad to see a couple who've fallen out of love. And I see that too, too often where some couple will come in for marriage and go, I don't love him anymore. Why? When you were 21 and you got married, man, you were passionate in love. You were, you were spending time with each other going out and he sent flowers and you were kissing him and, and, and then you got married. And then, well, then, you know, he left his socks on the floor and sometimes you wake up with bad breath and uh, sometimes you're not always put together like you were before when you cared um, and all that stuff. Now, here's the thing. Stuff happens as you get older and then couples say, well, you know, I'm not gonna hang out with, you know, my wife or my husband. Instead, I'm gonna go golf. Uh, instead, I'm gonna go out after work uh, with all the girls and, and leave my husband at home playing video games or whatever. And, and so you start not spending time as much together and you start not liking the things they don't do well more and you're investing into your friends and into golf and all this stuff. And, and here's what happens. You start, start falling in love with CrossFit Whoever said, I'm gonna fall in, with, in love with CrossFit? No, they didn't start that way, but if that's your whole thing and you never see your wife or your husband, but you're there with your CrossFit friends and hanging out and eating healthy while your friend's eating, a, or husband's eating at McDonald's, and, and pretty soon you're living these separate lives and you wonder, why don't we love each other? I don't love him. I don't love him anymore. And I would just say, listen, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's gonna be. And if you're investing your treasure into something that's less than your husband or your wife, don't be shocked when you fall out of love. It's just math. Um, and you can fix that. Good news, by the way, that you can fix that. But see, our culture teaches, no, if you don't have feelings for a person anymore, then it's over. I just don't love him anymore, so because I don't love him. No, that's not biblical kind of love. Biblical love is unconditional um, uh, a decision that you made to love this person until death do us part. That's the way it used to work and that's the way it's supposed to work. In the same way, loving God, well, that's what Jesus says is the deal. 
You and I are to love God, and, and not with just kind of a half of a heart, but with all your heart, mind, soul, might. Uh, and that's the imperative choice we have to make. So what does that mean? Um, how do we love God? If, if you say, Brett, I love God technically, but I don't know if I feel love for God. Well, then, then what you need to do is invest your treasure in the Lord. There's things you can do to find yourself falling in love again with God for all the wonderful things he's done for us. Loving him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength when you realize what he's done for you. Um, you know, first it's the Lord's kindness that leads men to repentance, the scriptures say. So it's goodness, you suddenly repent and say, I'm a sinner. And then as you know the Lord and how much he loves you, the Bible says we love him because he first loved us. So this imperative of loving God one of the mistakes we make, by the way, is compartmentalizing our lives. And we put God in a goofy compartment. You got your hobby, you got your career compartment, you got your family and you got your, uh, you know, your, um, you know, your work, uh, but you also have your church compartment and your God compartment or whatever. And then you got like, it, on and on it goes and we make these compartments and God is one of your compartments. Oh, but Brett, I do that. But, but God is number one. God, family, country, you know, God bless America. And you got your little compartments. Here's a question for you. Does God want to be on your little compartment list? Does God, even, even if he's number one, do you think God wants to be number one? I would make the argument that the answer is no. He doesn't want to be on our stupid little list. God wants to be overarching every part of our list. We got the list of things, that's fine. If you're a list person, great. But take your list and leave God off the list and put God over the whole enchilada. That's the way you do it. In fact, by the way, uh, the, the scriptures teach this in Colossians 3, 4. I love this verse because it reminds us of that precedent. It says, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. I love this, it reminds us Christ isn't part of our life or number one in our life, Christ is our life. That's the idea. So when it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, it's not that the Lord's saying, I want you to love me and forget about loving your husband or your wife or your family or others. No, this is the, the, the important imperative choice you have to make is to make God the one you choose to love. And this is, this is huge. This is giant. Because um, when you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, I'll show you a person. If a person loves God with everything they've got, then all the other little compartments in their life, I'll show you a person who's squared away in all those other compartments. If loving God is the, is, is the whole overarching theme. This is what Jesus is saying. He's not telling you to love God only and then you, don't, you can't play baseball or quilt or do leather craft or ride dirt bikes or whatever your thing is. It's not saying you have to just do everything only about God. It's saying that God should be over all those things that you do. And that's the mistake we make. We, 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 we separation of God and me. It's like what we did with our country with separation in church and state. As a founding nation, even though your cardigan-wearing, pipe-puffing people in the universities are saying, oh, the founding fathers of the United States were a bunch of deists. That's their dumb little you know, line that they're trying to teach our kids now, that they sort of knew about God or called him providence or whatever. You haven't read your history. Read these guys' journals. Read the letters that these founding fathers of our country wrote. These guys were more Christian, solid dudes than you and I are. These people loved Jesus Christ. There's maybe two of the signers of the, of the uh, declaration that may not have been Christians, maybe two. 
Uh, but that's even sketchy and questionable. But don't listen to all this stuff. So these guys started a, a nation saying, um, not you have to worship in a certain denomination or anything, but, but we're gonna make sure this is a, a, a nation that is centered upon God. That was their goal. Um, so our nation goes along, and then the Danbury Baptists, uh, they were worried that it was gonna be like the Church of England, you know, kind of fall back into the same trap of the government telling churches what kind of denomination they had to be and start dictating religion. And so the Danbury Baptists wrote a letter and, and to Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to the Danbury Baptists and was reassuring them, chill out Danbury Baptists, you guys are gonna be okay. Um, and he explained how the government would have a wall of separation between church and state. Um, and the point was, chill out, Danbury, you guys are gonna have freedom of religion and the government's, there's a wall that keeps the government from telling you what to do. That's, read the letter, like it's really clear, the intent. But then what happened? Well, what happened is shocking because even some of you probably in this room think that separation of church and state is some law written somewhere. It's not. It's not in the Constitution not in the Declaration, not in the Bill of Rights, not our laws anywhere. It's just in a letter from Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptist Church, and he coined that phrase, separation of church and state. And so a bunch of people, as the years have gone by, they twisted the meaning of separation of church and state to mean that you better not have anything of Jesus or the church in, in any form of government. So get God out of our schools, get God out of our courtrooms and no 10 commandments and on and on. And we so slowly as, as a nation that was founded on godly principles, slowly we've become this separation. And it's not even really a law, it's just a stupid thing that people have made up. And today people say separation of church and state. Um, wacko. Here's the problem. How's that working out for us? As a nation, the idea of getting God out of our government, out of, is that working out good? Well, it's actually kind of a mess. And the further away we get from God as a nation, the more messy it is. Same thing about your life personally. If you try to separate God in your compartment and say, well, I, I, I believe in God and yeah, 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 uh, I'm gonna go to church and put that in my God compartment, but then I'm gonna do everything else apart from God and leave God out of those areas, um, you're gonna end up with the same kind of messes that our nation is, is dealing with. That's the same thing, just on a smaller scale in your own little microcosm. This is why, see, Jesus isn't saying this imperative decision to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength because he loved me. He's not saying it for selfish reasons. He's saying it because he knows the person who loves God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength is gonna be squared away and blessed. Loving God is an honor and a privilege that we have, but it's something we should make sure we're doing it. <laughs> uh, so important. So instead of compartmentalizing, redeem it all, man. Put, put God in every part of your life. And so when you're quilting, how can you bring the Lord into that quilting? When you're riding dirt bikes, how can you bring the Lord into that part of your life and friends and group of people you're hanging out with? Brett, are you suggesting we shouldn't hang out with sinners? No, bring the Lord into that. That's what Jesus did when the, 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 you know, the sinners, the prostitutes and the, the publicans and the Democrats too, they all gathered around Jesus. That was a joke for you guys that are wondering. Um, that when they gathered around Jesus, all these sinners, it was about him showing them the way, the truth of life, that, that they were, he was saving those prostitutes and publicans and sinners. Um, that's what we should be doing, bringing Christ into every part of our lives and loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, who is our life. 
So point number one um, is really pretty simple, an imperative choice, love God. The second point of the day and final point is an intelligent choice. You see, while one is an imperative choice to love God, then like we told you that word like, meaning linked and as a result of, one of the things you logically need to do then is if you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then you also kind of need to love your neighbor as yourself. It's an intelligent choice we have to make. How do you love your neighbor as yourself? What if your neighbor is not very lovely or lovable? Um, as it turns out, Jesus doesn't really give you that out. We're supposed to love people uh, when it comes to being a Christian. If you've been saved by God's grace through faith, as it turns out, you and I are called to love one another. By the way, we as a culture have tried to figure out our racial issues of, of the nation. Have you noticed that? We're trying to figure out the racial problems and all this stuff. And, and man, I, I get a headache when I read white fragility and I read about critical race theory and all this stuff that's just dizzying and, and, and so not redemptive. If you, if you read white, white fragility, which I have, um, there's no redemption, there's no help. If you're basically a white person, you're a racist and you ever will be. And it's like, you're, uh, you're just a horrible person and, and the end. There's no, there's no fix. They don't really give you an answer. Just, that's just it, the end. But you know, what I love about the Bible is the Bible gives us very simple answers. And you might say it's too simple, but it's not. We're the ones who complicate everything. But here's the answer to racism. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, it's so simple, love if we would all just do what Jesus told us to do, there'd be no more racism ever, forever in the world. Um, and that's what the church should be modeling, by the way. The church of Jesus Christ should be those who we love one another because we're all sinners, we all fall short, we're all in the same boat. Um, and God loves us and has forgiven us, red, brown, yellow, black, white, um, as the little song we used to sing goes, they're all precious in his sight. Remember that song, Jesus loves the little children of the world. It's basic if we just love one another. So an intelligent choice has to do with God's love for us. And then as a result, we are choosing to love one another. You know who wrote a commentary on this was John the apostle. Um, uh, would you flip over to 1 John chapter four? Uh, keep your finger here in Matthew and go over to 1 John. Now, if you're looking for it, it's at the end of your Bible. There's the book of Revelation is the last book. Then you got Jude before that. And then right before that is 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So uh, in 1 John chapter four, and while you're turning there, there, by the way, church history tells us, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but after John, they attempted to boil him in a pot of oil, they couldn't kill him. God somehow protected him. So they put John on an island called Patmos and left him there to die, uh, exiled. But he, uh, after receiving the revelation of Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation, um, he um, then was released and got to go back and travel and he would go and talk to the various churches. Um, but this is the fun part. Church history tells us as an old guy, 90 years old, he would travel around and he'd go and speak at various churches and here's what he'd do. The pastor would say, the apostle John is here and people were freaking out, you know, because Jesus had died on the cross, you know, like uh, 60 years earlier. And the, there's people saying, wow, this is the one that hung out with Jesus. And so he'd, he'd carefully come up on the stage and they'd put John there and, and then everybody'd be listening with bated breath. And then John would say, little children love one another. And then he would walk off the stage. That was his whole sermon. 
You're like, Brett, you should take a, a, a note from John's length of sermon. I like that. Yeah, you could go a lot shorter. shorter. Uh, I'm not John, the apostle, so there. Um, but anyway, let's read John's commentary on loving one another. Check this out, John, 1 John chapter 4, starting verse 7. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Boy, that's a scary thing to think about. If you don't love others, you don't know God, because God is love. Um, and then verse nine, in this was manifested or made known the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, which means satisfaction of the penalty, paid the price, the propitiation for our sins. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. When we realize how much God loved us, that takes away any excuse for you and I to not be loving toward one another. If God loves us, then we need to love each other. Um, he goes on, let's fast forward to verse 16. And it says, and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect that we may be, uh, have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. Um, in other words, uh, his love dying on the cross made us perfect uh, in our sins. We can boldly stand before God in the day of judgment because of his love for us. Um, and then he goes on in verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. See how this is a commentary on love here, what John writes here, it's pretty clear. Uh, I love this, verse 18, um, there is no fear in love, perfect love casts out all fear. Um, this kind of cracks me up, there was a pastor who had a young girl in the church who had grown up in the church and he was about to do the wedding for this young girl. So he bought one of those white wedding Bibles, you know, and he wrote a nice little note and he said, you know, read, you know, John 4.18, uh, or read 1 John 4.18. And, um, and, you know, it's that scripture we just read, perfect love casts out all fear. Nice appropriate scripture for a newly married couple, perfect love casts out all fear. And the girl was so excited, she got the Bible and she looked and said, okay, look up, um, you know, 1 John 4.18. But instead of looking at 1 John, she looked up John 4.18. And she read it, uh, it said, for thou hast five husbands, and he uh, yeah, now is not your husband. Um, and she was a little confused. There's a difference between 1 John 4.18 and John 4. Be that as it may. Um, this is a beautiful commentary on how we are to love one another and why we're supposed to love one another. Because God is love, and God has loved us so much that we have no other option than to do the second part of the great Shema. Love the Lord their God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and like unto it, connected to it, is then loving your neighbor as yourself. And this is really clear. And this is the thing. We need to realize how much the Lord loves us. Because you might ask, Brett, how do I love the Lord with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? The answer is to start understanding and realizing how much he loves you. When you realize how much the Lord's love extends to you, 
It takes your legs out from on you to ever hate anyone. It, 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 it ruins it if you, don't, if you wanna be grouchy towards someone. If you really know the love of God and you then start loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, it's gonna become difficult and maybe even impossible for you to start hating other people. That's why the precedent is to love God first. And that's why the Bible tells us so much about the love of God. Probably the most famous verse in the Bible, you know, uh, has to do with that. In fact, in fact, you know, 1 John 4, 19, that scripture we just read, we love him because he first loved us. That's the key, knowing his love first so that then we in return love him back. That's kind of what it's saying. So you take a most famous verse of the Bible, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. What did he do? He gave his only begotten son which is huge. We say that so often. God gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, Romans chapter five, verse eight, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we're in the middle of our sins, Christ died for us. Um, his love is just that beautiful. Um, and, you know, we could go on and on talking about the scriptures about love. And, and, and that's the thing. Be careful. Be careful not to be the kind of Christian or so-called Christian even. Whether you're a Christian or not, you know, the Lord knows. But some people are going to end up like Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 30, 23 that says there's going to be people that will enter the, you know, the, the judgment area. And, and, um, and, not, and Jesus said in Matthew 7, not every one of you that say unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father. What's the will of my Father? Love one another. Um, and many will say in that day, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out devils and do wonderful works in their name? But the Lord will say, depart from me, um, you that work iniquity, um, or I never knew you. You see, God is into having a, a loving relationship with you. It's not enough for you to know about God or know about Jesus, because guess what? Satan knows about God and Jesus. But for you to accept Christ and the love of the cross, to accept that and receive the love of Christ is what it means to be saved, to accept and believe the cross of Jesus. And then when you understand how much he loves you and died on the cross for you and you're saved by his grace, that's when you start to realize, man, I do love God because of what he's done. And you start to see how radical it really is. So the choice that's before us today is, are you going to be one who loves God and loves others and do what this great Shema, the great command really of Jesus, which every other thing hangs on that? Are we gonna do that or not? And there's gonna come a time in, in the future where that will shake out whether you did or not. And for the person who loved God, when, when Christ returns and we stand before God in glory, it's gonna be one of the most loving, most powerful times in, in your future. But if you haven't accepted Christ and you are not loving God, it might just be one of the most horrific times in, in your life or future. C.S. Lewis actually talked about this and C.S. Lewis was a um, craft, crafty with words. Um, but I like the way he put this one. Um, he, uh, he said this about what I'm talking about. He said, when the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade, but what is the good of saying you are on his side then when he comes out on the stage, when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else crashing in, this time it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it'll strike either irresistible love 
or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. That will not be the time for the choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen. Whether we realized it before or not, now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. When the Lord comes back or crashing in, as C.S. Lewis puts it, there will be people who will be in love and in awe of a loving God. And there will be others that'll be stricken with an irresistible horror. Um, that's kind of a shocking thing, but the Bible actually says that. In fact, we were reading in Wednesday night about how he's the stone of crushing or the stone of blessing. It's, it's your choice. You, you choose. If you choose to follow God, he'll save you and, and, um, and redeem you and you'll see the love of God um, or you reject that and you won't know the love of God and you won't know God personally. And the Lord will say, depart from me. I never knew you. So there's a choice to believe Jesus the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus makes it clear, love is the key. You know, remember I told you how uh, there, you know, investing your treasure is what makes you fall in love? That's kind of the thing. If you're a person who's saying, I, I wanna be in love with God, but I'm not sure I am. Well, where's your treasure? And when you, when you really take time and read God's word, that's gonna invest in your treasure. When you come to Wednesday night Bible study, uh, you're investing time in God's love letter, his book that he's written for us. And you're gonna be more and more in love with God as you study his word. When you worship in song, that's a, a, an expression of love. And the more treasure you invest in that, the more in love with God you'll be. But did you know there's, there's one of the most intimate acts that we get to do as Christians. It's one of the two ordinances along with baptism, but, but one of the key ordinances of our love relationship with God is the act of communion. So Lord, I pray blessing upon these, your people. Thank you for washing us. I pray as we go from this place that we'd know that we have a clean slate. Lord, that we'd um, just go our way and, and just see sin for what it is and love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbors. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.